For the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the future and listening for God's call on how we move forward together as a church and how we follow Jesus Christ. We've been reminded of President Kennedy's bold declaration that we must go to the moon and do things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That vision, of course, paved the way for future accomplishments of our nation, and in the same way, we listen for God's vision that will call us forward and allow us to accomplish things that we never could have done on our own. Today, our passage of scripture that Owen is about to read for us is far more futuristic than even the moon or outer space. These brief verses are from the New Testament, spoken by Jesus, and Jesus is explaining to his listeners what the end of time will look like. Our passage is the conclusion of a very long speech by Jesus, and he's been describing how a king is praising some of his subjects and how they lived, saying, you fed me when I was hungry, you welcomed me when I was a stranger, you visited me when I was in prison, and that leads the subjects to ask a question, and that's where we pick up with our scripture reading this morning. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This Wednesday will be the space launch of expedition number 61, which is bound for the International Space Station. There will be three astronauts aboard Expedition 61. There will be one from the United States, one from the United Arab Emirates, and one from Russia. And one of the cool things is the American astronaut is a woman, significant because of the 500-some people who have been launched into space, only 60-some have been women. So uh, one more woman astronaut up there in space. The International Space Station is a unique place. Now, of course, it's in space. That's the obvious. But in addition, it was designed specifically to be a place of learning and peace and research, which is a little bit different. In fact, I started following the International Space Station on Instagram, which I highly recommend if you're on Instagram. About half of the photos are cool pictures of space, the Earth, the space station, things like that. But the other half are pictures of the astronauts themselves, because they're from different countries all around the world. And apparently, the astronauts often have dinner together. And they'll say, well, well, we're meeting in the American half of the space station for our dinner tonight, or we're meeting in the Russian half of the space station to have our dinner. I also learned there's different modules along the International Space Station, and they're named things. So they'll say, we're having dinner in the Unity module tonight. We're having dinner in the Harmony module tonight. Very cool names. These people come from different nations, but they all eat together and they're unified by their purpose. And they're dependent on one another for their survival once they're up there in space. The International Space Station event has been constantly inhabited for almost 20 years now, which is the longest of any space station that we've seen to this point. 
But similar to getting to the moon, it took a lot of work to get to where we are today. It was President Reagan who first called for the International Space Station, and it was in 1983, and he said at the time, a space station will permit quantum leaps in our research in science, communications, and life-saving medicines. And then he also said, we want our friends to help us meet these challenges and share in their benefits. NASA will invite other countries to participate so that we can strengthen peace, build prosperity, and expand freedom. Strengthen peace, build prosperity, and expand freedom. That was the vision. That was the vision. Now here on Earth, we've got a lot of politics, we've got a lot of squabbles, there are a lot of things that divide us. But for these astronauts who live on the space station, those things fade away because they're unified by their mission as a crew. Perhaps being in space puts things in perspective a little bit. Our scripture this morning also puts things into perspective. I would describe it as a cosmic passage. Jesus' disciples, they're not asking him just basic level questions at this point. They're asking, Jesus, tell us what the end of time is going to look like. Tell us what it's going to look like when Christ returns and the new creation is at hand and all things have come to an end. What will it be like, Jesus? And so he starts to answer them. And there's a whole lot more scripture that we didn't read this morning. But these are the big picture questions. What's it going to be like at the end of time? Within this section of scripture, Jesus is telling his disciples what's really going to matter. When everything is said and done and life here is over, Jesus reminds us of this truth. It's how we care for one another, how we love one another. That's what matters. That's what endures. Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was in prison. You visited me. Whenever you did this for the least of my brothers and sisters, the least in my family, you did this for me. It's as simple as that welcoming those who are strange to us, visiting those who are incarcerated, providing access to clean water. It's as simple as that. And yet it's often not so simple, is it, really? We think about giving someone a drink of water. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. You got a bottle of water or a cup and you hand it to them. And yet I felt convicted as I read this passage because I was thinking about thousands of kids in Flint, Michigan, where we know they didn't have access to clean water when they really should have. You and I didn't directly cause the Flint water crisis. We know that. And yet, in some ways, we were complacent in it. We were part of it because we're their neighbors. We didn't advocate for testing of the water in Flint prior to 2015. We didn't know we had to, but we also didn't think about it. We supported leaders in power who ignored this looming crisis, who perhaps could have taken action and didn't. These are kids, adults too, but many of them kids. And are children not the definition of the least of these that Jesus was talking about in this passage? You know, they're not in Clarkston, but they're in the next town over, not too far from us. And I have to say, I'm really proud of the way this congregation responded to that crisis. We have sent so much water, and we've sent gifts of money. And even this year, your mission team is making a donation to the continued recovery efforts that are happening in Flint because 
lead poisoning doesn't just go away. You have to continue to try and mitigate those effects, and people are doing that work. The work continues even now. So giving a glass of water directly to someone who's thirsty may seem simple enough, and it is, but in 2019, the world is so much more complicated than that because we know about all these situations far beyond our front door, and God calls us to respond accordingly. We're called not just to hand out a bottle of water, but in fact to be advocates for people who thirst. We're called to be people who disrupt the political system if it's necessary to let our leaders know, hey, we want clean water for everybody. Not just for us in Clarkston, but for the people in Flint and Pontiac and any other community around our state. We, we think clean water is a priority, a human right. I think we're pretty united in that. Any other differences aside, we believe that clean water is a basic human right. So that when the least among us fill up their cup, we know that their water is clean and their thirst is quenched. Amen. Amen, that's right. I think that welcoming people works in a similar way. It's really easy on some levels to welcome people that we already know. When you come in on a Sunday morning, you see an old friend or somebody that you've known for a while, that's easy. Shake their hand, give them a hug. It's easy, too, to welcome people who look very similar to us, who act similar to us, dress similar, all those kinds of things. But that's not the only thing Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture. By definition, a stranger is someone we are not familiar with, someone who is not yet known to us. And there's many forms that that might take. But Jesus says simply, whenever you welcome the least among you, you welcome me. Whenever you welcome the least among you, you welcome me. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't put any qualifications on it. He doesn't say, whenever you welcome somebody who looks like you, whenever you welcome somebody who talks like you, who dresses like you, who thinks like you, Jesus doesn't put any of that stuff on this passage. He simply says, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And that includes everyone. That includes those people who look different, who think different, who speak different. And on an individual level, this gets a little bit more challenging than simply handing out a cup of water. Because, truthfully, we make assumptions about people who we don't know yet. A couple of psychologists from Princeton studied this phenomenon, and they found that it only takes a tenth of a second for us to make a decision about what kind of person we think we're looking at. A tenth of a second. And this was just looking at photographs of people's faces. It only takes us a tenth of a second to decide, are they trustworthy, are they kind, are they loyal, are they loving? But that's just from looking at their face. That's not from talking with them. That's not getting to know them. And so we carry these things. That's part of our human nature and something we have to fight against because we know that's how we are. Tenth of a second. And we all carry biases around with us. That's the truth of the matter. And some of them are simple and conscious, and they sort of help us get through life. For example, if you're a dog person, you might have a bias towards other dog people. You have a dog, they have a dog, you make a connection, you start sharing cute dog photos. It's a thing. It's a thing. Or maybe if you're a University of Michigan fan, you make a quick connection with somebody else who's a U of M fan, and if they're a state fan, you go, oh, I don't know about that. I'm going to have to think about this friendship. And we're mostly joking. We're like 95% joking, but every once in a while, we take these things very seriously. That's an example of a conscious bias. But more frequently, our biases, they're implicit. 
or they're unconscious. They're, thing, they're things that are rolling around below the surface of our mind, and they may or may not be accurate. They may or may not have a basis in reality. Pew Research did a study that 88% of blacks in America said that changes are still needing to be made in this country for blacks and whites to be treated equally. And then they asked white people the same question. And whites, only 53% of whites in America said, yeah, we still have work to do for whites and blacks to be treated equally. Now, assuming that we all want people to be treated equally, which I believe we do, we seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of how people are being treated in our country. And that's where bias comes in, because we don't always understand the experience of others. And so as I read the study, I found myself asking, like, why do we have such a huge disparity in our understanding of the racial situation in our country between blacks and whites, unless white people like me and you are not listening to the experiences of black people when they share what they've gone through in this country? For example, 84% of blacks in America say blacks and whites are not treated equally by the police. Only 50% of whites feel that way. That's bias. That's bias. That's the only thing that explains that. And it separates us from one another because we don't understand each other's experiences. That's one example, but meanwhile, the majority of LGBTQ Americans have experienced harassment and more than half have experienced violence because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Again, that's just bias and hatred at work. Certainly, none of us here would physically assault someone, but people have experienced that and we need to listen to those experiences if we're gonna to seek to welcome one another in the way that Jesus is talking about in the scripture passage. You and I can be the most well-intentioned people out there, but unless we, we confront some of our own assumptions and unconscious bias, whether it's about race, sexuality, gender, age, you name it, we may not do a great job of welcoming people who are different from ourselves. And so we need to educate ourselves by listening to the experience of others and learning whether they're a different race, a different orientation, different national origin, different religion, different language. We need to learn. We need to educate ourselves. Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was unfamiliar and you welcomed me. That implies that we somehow became familiar with that unfamiliar person. Jesus offers no qualification on the right to be welcomed. Right now, we're seeing the grave importance of this gospel call. In this moment in history, this is critical because recently there's been some really scary white supremacy stuff in our country. We've heard about it on the news where people are really consciously and proudly claiming a bias and a prejudice and discrimination and hate. And I know it's not a majority, it's the subculture, but even so, that's not something we can be okay with as people of faith, and I know we're not. But so often we remain silent, and we don't say anything about it. I heard the comedian Trevor Noah recently say, he's heard there's not that many white supremacists in the country, there's not even enough to fill up a football field. So really, why are we so worried about it? And then he went on to say, well, do you know how many people fit in a football field? That's a lot of people. He said, we should be talking about white supremacy in this country to say, you know, there's not enough white supremacists to fill up a golf cart. That's the right number. Not any more than that. 
And it's not enough to simply shake our heads and look away and go, oh yeah, that's, that's not good, but that's over there. We need to be actively engaging in this conversation as people of faith, as followers of Jesus. We need to convey that it's important to treat one another with respect and love rather than fear or disgust. When we see racism in action, we cannot remain silent. And the tricky thing about all, this form, all these different forms of discrimination is so often it's subtle. So often it's not overt, it's those little comments, those little jokes, those little things people say. And so often we don't speak up. We let it slide, we turn our head, we walk away, we ignore it. But that's not our call as people who are seeking to welcome others in the name of Jesus Christ. And so if we see homophobia, if we see sexism, if we see ageism, we see xenophobia, we see Islamophobia, we need to be the people who are gonna say something. We need to be the people who are going to speak up in the name of Jesus Christ and say, you know what, that's not okay. That's not right. We can't live like that. We can't treat each other like that. I was so proud to read to you the list of announcements that we, of things that we have going on this morning in the church. Do you remember that series of announcements? Maybe not. You were getting ready for worship. It was all a little bit hazy, even though it was just a few minutes ago. But we're packing snacks for kids in our schools who might otherwise go hungry that's gospel work. We're hosting a class on gender, sexual orientation, and faith to learn about people who may be different from us, and that is gospel work. We've got quilts out there that are going to go to immigrants to let them know that somebody loves them and cares about them, even though they may be different from us, and that is gospel work. This is good stuff that we all are doing here together, and I am so grateful to be a part of that work. Because our call as Christians is to create an environment where everyone feels welcomed. And not only that, everyone is fed. Their thirst is quenched. If they're sick, we visit. If they're incarcerated, we visit. If they're naked, we give them something to wear. Our task is to create environment, an environment where all are valued and all are loved in the name of Jesus Christ. The International Space Station was born out of a similar type of ideal. Countries that maybe couldn't get along together down on Earth could work together to create something beautiful and good, something that would benefit the world. Specifically, the US and Russia, long-standing history of uh, challenging times and competition. And yet, in space, Russia and the United States are able to collaborate and work together. That was the vision of the space station that we've seen come to fruition in many ways. And I started by saying that the lives of these astronauts depend on one another on this space station. But you know what? It's really no different down here on Earth. Our lives depend on one another. The lives of people in Flint depend on those of us in surrounding communities, their neighbors, to speak up to not turn a blind eye, to get involved and advocate for clean water. The lives of our brothers and sisters, whether they're white or black, living in an urban area, a rural area, whether they're straight or gay, hungry or sick, thirsty or in prison, each one created in the image of God, by the way, are dependent on us to speak up and be advocates for equal treatment, equal welcome, equal love in the eyes of God. We're each different from one another. We know that to be true just from looking around the room, getting in a short conversation. We've got differences. But together, we must be advocates. Together, we can create something good 
and beautiful, that benefits the world in the name of Jesus Christ, so that no one's treated unequally because of the pigment of their skin or who they love or their age or their religion or any of those other things that seem to separate us as human beings. This is a day for putting things into perspective. This is a scripture passage for putting things into perspective. Because when we reach the end of our life here, when all is said and done, and we consider the end of time and the return of Jesus Christ, Jesus paints a picture that reminds us it's really quite simple. The way that we care for people is what matters. The way that we care for people is what matters. Jesus said, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger who was unknown to you, and you welcomed me. May that be said of each one of us, today and always. Amen.